As we go to consider God's word, let's ask him to bless it to us. Let us pray. Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead your people like a flock. You who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth by your spirit and illuminate your word that we might see Jesus. Look down from heaven and see and have regard for us as the branches of your son, the true vine, the stock that your right hand planted. Give us life and we will call upon your name. And let your face shine on us in Christ that we may be saved. Hear us, we pray in his name. Amen. Please be seated. And please turn with me in God's word to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. Joshua, chapter 6. I think on most, in most of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 230. Uh, Joshua is the sixth book of the Bible between Deuteronomy and Judges. If you're visiting with us this evening, we've been considering a series through the book of Joshua, and we've come to chapter 6 and the fall of Jericho. And so we want to read together uh, this chapter. We'll read the whole chapter together, uh, beginning at verse 1. So let's pay careful attention, Joshua chapter 6, for this is God's own word. Now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. This shall you do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, And the priest shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward, blowing the trumpets with the ark of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout. Then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about it once. And they came into the camp and spent the night in the camp. And then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priest took up the ark of the Lord, And the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horn before the ark of the Lord walked on, and they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day, And marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. 
And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in the house shall shall live because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. And as soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. But the two men who had spied out the to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her, as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned with the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and the gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put in the treasury of the house of the Lord. But Rahab the prostitute and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Joshua laid an oath on them at that time saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Thus far the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. This is maybe a story well known to many of us, especially if you grew up in the church. This is probably one of those Bible stories that you know very well, the story of the Lord uh, delivering Jericho into the hands of his people. Um, The writer of Hebrews explains to us this miraculous deliverance of the city in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, verses 1 and 2. We read, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. And in verse 30 of chapter 11, we read, By faith the walls of Jericho fell down, after they had been encircled for seven days. Uh, So the writer of Hebrews explains to us how we are to think of this situation, explains to us how it is that this wall fell down. Uh, God promised to give his people victory over their enemies. God's people responded in faith, trusting in his word, obeying his command, and they received what God had promised them. Um, A very simple but important message for us to understand. Uh, That God's word is to be trusted, God's word is to be obeyed, um, and that faith in God proves uh, reliable. Uh, So we want to think about this God-given victory and how God delivers this city into the hands of his people, and we want to think about some of the ramifications of this text. Uh, We want to think together about the spiritual warfare we see uh, going on in this text to properly understand this as a God-given victory. So we want to think about spiritual warfare. We also want to think about sovereign justice. 
um, as God visits his justice on this people. And then finally, we want to think about his saving grace, how he delivers Rahab and his family as he promised. I think all aspects that are important to think about this God-given victory. To see this first and foremost as a moment of spiritual warfare. Uh, Verse 1 tells us very clearly the obstacle that lay before the people of God. This was a strong fortified city and a city prepared for an attack. Uh, That's that's what it means in verse 1 when we read that it was shut up inside and outside because of the people. None went out and none came in. They're ready for an attack. They're ready for war. This city is prepared. Um, And that usually was a very big obstacle back in those days. You didn't have cannon or any kind of artillery that could knock down big walls. So you only had a limited number of tactics as an army you could try. Uh, You could try to get through a wall by brute force. You could try to go under it. You could try to go through it. Or you could try to go over it. Um, And against determined defenders, all of those are dangerous options. Um, And if you couldn't do it by brute force, you might try by deception. Uh, Probably the most famous deception to get around a wall is the episode of the Trojan horse. Uh, Trick them into bringing you inside and then get them from inside. Well, they're shut up in Jericho. They're not letting anyone out. They're not letting anyone in. The chances of coming in by deception are not good. So normally your only other option would be to lay siege to the city and try to starve them out, build up defensive positions and just wait for them uh, to, to try to outlast them. Now, those are all the usual tactics for taking a fortified city. Those would have been all of the things that Jericho would have been prepared for. The thing they were not prepared for is for the walls to just fall down flat one day. Um, and so the tactics that are prescribed to them by the Lord are very strange tactics, very unusual tactics, and tactics that, wouldn't, that no military commander would have thought were well calculated to beat a fortified city. They are to take their army and form a column of all the fighting men. Uh, There's armies to go before the ark and there's army to go after the ark. And the first day they are to march once around the city. Nobody's saying anything, just the priests blowing trumpets. And once they've all marched around the city, they're to go back home. Um, And I, I like to imagine what the defenders of Jericho would have thought of this on the first day when they saw them coming. I mean, they knew they were coming, they knew war was coming, and so all of a sudden, here comes the army, and they watch the army march around their city, and then it goes home. Um, And then the next day, the army does the same thing. And maybe as a defender, you say, all right, now we better get ready. Here they are, Now, now something surely will happen. And they do the same thing. They walk around the city, and then they go home. And they do that Monday, and they do that Tuesday, and they do that Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, after a while you might just be thinking to yourself, I, I'm even not, not even sure it's worth putting on my armor. They're not doing anything. They're just walking around the city. Um, this doesn't seem a, a, a well-calculated way to take down a fortified city. Um, it doesn't seem to offer really any threat to them whatsoever. To have just the army walk around with the priests blowing trumpets but not doing anything else must have looked like an absurd thing to do. Um, I wonder how it looked to the people of Jericho. I wonder how it felt to the fighting men. Uh, You get ready to fight, and those are the orders you're given. We're just going to march around the city and just don't say anything. Uh, What did they think of that? Uh, Well, we're not told what anyone thinks of this. All we're told is that they obeyed what God called them to do. 
They formed the column just the way he had told them to form it, with the ark of the Lord in the center, um, with the army going before them and an army following behind them. But here is the ark of the Lord really in the center of all that happens. Um, And they march around. They do exactly what God had called them to do. And what they recognized and what we should recognize in thinking about this is this is an unusual tactic for earthly warfare, uh, but this is not a case of earthly warfare principally that we have in this text. This is really about spiritual warfare. Uh, This is about spiritual warfare and God teaching his people about who they put their trust in and whether they're going to trust the word of God and his promise to them. Because the promise was, once we do all of these things, the walls are just going to fall down. And the city will be delivered into our hands. Are they going to trust that the Lord will do what he's promised? Do they trust his word? Do they trust in his presence? Right, That's what the ark of the Lord represents to God's people. They they believe that God dwelt above the cherubim. It was his footstool. It represented his rule, his reign. And this is not like when they crossed the Jordan River. Remember when they crossed the Jordan River, the ark was way out in front of God's people, and they were way behind. That's not where the ark is now. The ark is right in the midst of them. What is the message being sent to them? The Lord is in the midst of your army. The Lord goes with you into this battle. This is not principally a battle of earthly warfare. This is principally a battle of spiritual warfare. It's setting the question before us, in whom do you trust? We know who the people of Jericho were trusting. The people of Jericho were trusting their big walls. They must have thought, nobody can come in here. We've shut them up inside and out. We're ready for a fight. Um, Being where Jericho was, they always had to be ready for a fight. They were sort of right on the highway that armies would travel. And so they were probably well-experienced fighters in defending their city. They trusted in their walls. They thought they could shut God's people out. Um, And what are God's people called to trust in in this passage? They're called to trust in the promise of God's word and in the power of God's presence to do what he said he would do. That's really the contest that's before us, Uh, whether God will triumph and the thing that they put their trust in will triumph or whether the walls of Jericho will triumph and the things that they put their trust in. It's a reminder to us that your faith is only as good as what you are putting your faith in. Um, Your faith is only as good as its object and the thing that you are trusting Um, And the writer of Hebrews says the people of God trusted in God's word. And by faith, the walls of Jericho came crashing down. The only weapon God's people needed was faith in their God. That God would do what he promised. Um, That's a wonderful reminder to God's people when we think about the spiritual warfare that we are engaged in. Right? You can't just file this in, okay, now I know what to do if we have to ever take a fortified city as a church. Now we're, we're prepared. Um, that's not what this passage is about. That's not the application. Um, but what, what is the application? That God's promises can be trusted. That God's powerful presence can be trusted for his people. And this should be encouragement and a reminder to us as the church of Jesus Christ. God can be trusted to do what he's promised. We don't put our faith and trust in him in vain. 
And even though we don't face enemies like fortified cities, we do face all kinds of enemies in this world. One commentator put it this way, there are fortresses of evil in our land, in the church, and we must confess in ourselves. And they are surrounded by high walls. The gates are sealed and they are manned by strong and experienced defenders. And how do we respond to these fortresses of evil? By putting our trust in the Lord. By putting our trust in the promise of God's word and in the power of God's presence. uh, That God will do for our world and for us what he's promised to do. There's power in the Lord. Um, That's what the, the Bible tries to beat into our heads because it goes against what we see. Um, it, could be, it could have been easy for them to think, walking around a city and blowing trumpets is no way to take a city down. We'd be much better mounting siege engines or doing the kinds of things you do to knock down walls. Um, this surely can't be the way. Um, but then that would have been to miss the divine power of the way God had appointed things to be done. Now think of what the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 10, 3 and 4. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Um, There's a temptation for God's people to want to use the weapons of the flesh against the fleshly struggles we face. Uh, to think, well, the world is coming at us with this kind of weapons, so we should respond in kind. Um, or we're f- facing a suture and they're coming at us with the ways of the world. We should respond in kind. Um, that's where the power is. Um, and what does the apostle tell us? That's actually not the fight we're fighting. Our fight is a spiritual fight. And if you choose the weapons of the world, they have a kind of power. But what do they lack? They lack divine power which is a much greater kind of power. And that's the encouragement the apostle gives. There is divine power to destroy strongholds. Not by using the weapons of the flesh, but by using the weapons of our warfare. Think how the conquerors are described in Revelation 12, 11. They have conquered him, how? By the blood of the Lamb. And by the word of their testimony. Those are the weapons that have divine power to destroy strongholds. We cannot be, as a church or as a people of God, invited into a struggle that is life or death and use weapons that are less than useful. Um, That's what this passage is reminding us. We have a God who has all the power. That His presence with us is to be trusted. His promises are to be trusted. And we are to follow Him as faithful soldiers, doing what He commands us to do and trusting that what He commands us to do will help us to conquer in the fight that's before us. That's what we're called to do as the people of God because no one is any match for divine power. Why did these walls fall down? Well, because you can't build up walls against divine power. There's no weapon you can fashion that will stand against the Lord. And it's sort of silly to try. 
The truth of that's communicated by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 51 and 53 and 58 when he says, when God says, though Babylon should mount up to heaven and though she should fortify her strong height, yet destroyers would come from me against her, declares the Lord. The broad wall of Babylon shall be leveled to the ground and her high gate shall be burned with fire. The people labor for nothing and the nations weary themselves only for fire. Um, Sometimes we can be so caught up in what the world is doing. We can be so worried about it. And this is not a call to inaction or for Christians to hide their head in the sand. But we should remember from time to time, you could mount up a wall up to heaven if you wanted, and the Lord would still tear it down. The enemies of this world, the enemies of our God and of Christ, His King, are not capable of waging war against Him. They are not capable of standing against Him. And the worst they do in this world is still a laboring for nothing. They are wearying themselves only for fire. Do we really believe that? Do we believe in the strength of our God? Do we believe in the strength of Christ? That all God's people really need to do is believe in His promises, trust in His power, and stand back and watch God be God? Cling to His power and walk in obedience, trust? Hope we understand that that spiritual warfare will always be won by our God and by Christ his King. Um, He will do his will against all those who oppose him in this world. His enemies will be visited with sovereign justice. That's the the hard lesson of this text. Um, It's hard to, as we go through the conquest of, of the promised land in this book, one of the difficulties we will face as we go along is the magnitude of the destruction. Um, Verses like verse 21 are hard to read. We read that they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. It's a terrible judgment. It's a terrible judgment inflicted. And no matter how how we talk about it, it's still terrible. I remember preaching a sermon once on, the, on, the, on the, one of the conquest stories in Joshua, and I tried to labor hard to talk about God's divine justice, and then the first comment that someone raised with me at the door is, well, that's so hard. It is. This is a terrible picture of judgment that comes on this, this nation. But one of the things that we have to be reminded of is that this terrible judgment comes on this nation because of their terrible sin. Um, The destruction that's pictured for us in the conquest of Canaan is a terrible judgment. Um, But it's a terrible judgment on account of the terrible sins that have been committed by this people for a long time. Uh, They were committing great wickedness when Abraham was in this land, hundreds of years before. And in part of God's promise to Abraham, he said, I have my eye on these people, I've seen their iniquity, and it's, there's a ticking clock. There's a, a point at which I won't put up with it anymore, um, that I'm going to visit the land in judgment. Um, and part of the problem we have with a terrible judgment is we don't really believe that the sin is that terrible to deserve it. 
We've talked about that before, haven't we? That sometimes part of our difficulty is, you know, if we think about hell or the judgment of God is that we just don't think somehow it's, it still seems too harsh. It still seems too bad. It's too terrible. And usually that is a sign that we have not truly put uh, the right price on sin. That we don't truly understand how terrible things are and how terrible the crimes are that deserve this kind of punishment. Um, in my former career, when I was a, a law school student, I was uh, spent some time at the California Attorney General's office. And at my time at the Attorney General's office, they had an execution that was happening during that time. Uh, California, we don't execute very many criminals, and this was a time when there was going to be an execution. The last appeals had been exhausted. It was going to happen. And when you hear how executions happen, it's, it's a grim business. Um, it happens by lethal injection. They give you something that puts you to sleep, and then they give you something that stops your diaphragm so you can't breathe, and they give you something that stops your heart so it can't beat. And when you think about that, that's terrible. hope we can all agree that's terrible to think of that being done to a human being. Um, But the reason this man was being put to death was because he'd committed terrible crimes. He had sexually assaulted five women. He had killed four others. His last victim was an 11-year-old girl who he raped and beat and threw her off a bridge to kill her. Uh, She fell 100 feet to her death and didn't die right away. It was a terrible judgment to execute him. There were terrible crimes he'd committed. His situation was so bad that not even the protesters who usually turn up to protest death penalties protested his death. It was a, it's a terrible way to die. He had committed terrible crimes. And what God's word is clear about the Canaanites is they had committed terrible crimes. They were guilty of abominable sexual immorality. Um, you know, we read some of the laws like in Leviticus 18, and it's a kind of passage where Parents don't want me to read it. We don't want to read it. We would prefer to skip it. And we say, we read the list and we say, does this really need to be in the Bible? Why is this here? Why is this so awful? The Canaanites were doing all of those things. God's people had to be warned against them. They were guilty of abominable spiritual practices. They were involved in sorcery and divination, fortune telling, mediums, inquiring of the dead, offering their children as human sacrifices. They're terrible sins. God said they are so evil that what's happening to them is the land is vomiting them out. Another cheery picture for us to think about. But what is this all communicating to us? This is great evil that they're guilty of. And the Lord has been seeing this evil for centuries. And the Lord is saying, now is the time for a recompense. Now there is a time for a judgment to fall. It's a terrible judgment, but it's completely just. What happens is just, and God does it to punish the wicked for their sins. This is a just punishment on the wicked, and no one can deny that if anyone has the right to punish the wicked, the Lord has the right. One commentator said, this might seem an inhuman massacre had it not been executed by the command of God. 
But as he in whose hands are life and death had justly doomed those nations to destruction, this puts an end to all discussion. Uh, It's hard, but God is just. Uh, His ways are justice. Um, And we cannot question his right to visit this justice. He does this to punish the wicked for their sins. He also does this to protect the righteous from their evil. Our God does this not only because they are deserving of judgment to fall on them, but he knows that if they are spared, the effect they will have on his people. Um, That God's people will be affected by their evil. That's why they are devoted to destruction. To punish them for their sins, but also to protect the righteous from their sins. It's interesting how the Lord talks about this ban, this devotion to destruction that things are put under. Um, it's cursed, and it's cursed because they, God knows these things will infect my people if they're left to stand. Um, it's kind of interesting how he talks about these things and how we are taught to think about them. Look at verse 18 with me. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. It's as if this evil is to be thought of as catching, as contagious. If you take these things into your camp, you'll make your camp a thing for destruction. Uh, These things are not to be brought with you. They will corrode you. You will almost catch it. There's a sense in which it says that. Back in Deuteronomy, when God was giving laws about these things, he made an interesting statement there in Deuteronomy 13, 17. None of the devoted things shall stick to your hand. There it's kind of an image of, you know, working with tar or if when you use crazy glue, if you do what I do and end up gluing your fingers together and all kinds of other things. It, it sticks to you, right? It's almost as if this stuff will stick to you. You'll find yourself trying to shake this evil off your hand. Um, what, what is the lesson God was teaching his people? It's like a spiritual disease. It'll attach to you, and the wickedness will corrode you in your righteousness. That's how they were to think of these things. And if you're not convinced that that's a good reason, think about what the consequences were when they failed to do what God had told them to do. When they failed to visit justice on the people as he'd commanded them to do, what happened? Did their wickedness corrode his people in their righteousness? It did. Think of what we read in Psalm 106, 34 to 39. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. The land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts. Again, here we are thinking we know better than God. There must have been a better way than this kind of devotion to destruction. But what happened when they failed to do it? Exactly what God said would happen, happened. Their wickedness corroded them. Wickedness corroded them in their righteousness and they became like the people that they were supposed to wipe out. Because God knows the truth, that wickedness and righteousness can't coexist. 
Wickedness will always corrode righteousness. That's why it has to be put out. Despite the severity of God's sovereign justice, we see that he's working not only to punish the wicked, but to protect his own. This is for their good. This is for their protection. But I realize you may not still be convinced. Um, I've had the experience before of not being convinced. So one more thing in regard to God's justice, and you can think about this, that if you still think that God's justice here is too severe, remember that God does not command his people anything to do at Jericho that he did not endure himself on the cross. If we're still tempted to think that this kind of devotion to destruction is too severe, then we should remember that God himself was devoted to destruction on the cross. That that's the purpose of the cross stands for in Jesus Christ. That he was devoted to destruction there. He became the curse for our sins and was destroyed for our sins. So that we would not be cut off. He was punished for our wickedness on the cross. And he put our sins to death there so that our wickedness would no longer corrode us. So he would put an end to our wickedness and give us his righteousness. So that we would live. So that Christ would receive the punishment we were due. And that by his dying he would protect us from what he knew wickedness would do to us. That's the glory of what the Lord Jesus Christ did on the cross. He devoted himself to destruction for the sake of his people. That we might be saved. He was punished for our evil so that he might protect us from it. So he might make us holy. Uh, And that's the glory of what he's done for us by his cross. He has devoted our wickedness to destruction. He has washed it away, uh, made it nothing. One Reformed commentator said, When Christ rose on Easter morning, he left behind him in the depths of the grave every one of our sins. And there they remain buried from the sight of God so completely that even in the day of judgment they will not be able to rise up against us anymore. He has devoted our sin to destruction. And he who knew no sin became sin for us that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sovereign justice is on display here. But in the midst of that sovereign justice, there is also a picture of God's saving grace. Now, that's the picture we are left with in this passage. In the midst of all of this death, in the midst of all of this destruction, there is saving grace extended to Rahab and to her family. Um, it's, it's a reminder that this is going on at the same time. Um, as, as the walls fall down and death and destruction is reigning Throughout the city, there is one group of people who are conducted safely through um, and no harm comes to them. It's, it's the story of Rahab. And that's the story that is always matched one against the other. The sovereign justice of God matched next to the saving grace of God. That God is just and he is just in when he visits judgment and God is merciful and to be glorified when he shows grace. The writer of Hebrews puts those two things side by side, reminding us the walls of Jericho fell by faith, but what also happened by faith? By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient 
because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. That's how saving grace was applied to her and to her family. All around them was death and destruction. Um, All around them was fire, but it didn't touch them. The Lord saw to it that they were delivered through that judgment to safety. Everything living put to the sword, the town burned with fire, such an accursed place that Joshua said it's to remain a ruin forever. Right? It was, it was destroyed, it was burned, and Joshua said, if you build it, you build it at the cost of your own children. And if you continue to read in the scriptures, you'll read about the man who rebuilt Jericho. And when he set its foundations, he lost his oldest son. And when he set up its gates, he lost his youngest son. This was to be an accursed place forever. And yet through all of this, Rahab and her family are saved. None of it touched them. And they came and remained initially outside the camp, probably for a time of cleansing, so they could receive a new identity and a new beginning with the people of God. But then they come in, and they live with God's people. And at the time this was written, we're told that they lived with God's people to this day. It's a picture of God's saving grace in the midst of all of this destruction. In the midst of all of this judgment, the Lord still showed mercy. What does, what does this conquest of Canaan really picture for us? It's a picture of the final judgment. That's what's being pictured for us in this conquest. It's a picture of what will happen at the final judgment. Jericho is a fitting picture of that. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 says, That day too, when God judges the earth, will begin with a trumpet and a shout. That day too, things will seem like they're going on just like normal. Just like the men on, the, on their high walls must have thought. There's peace and security. And then sudden destruction came upon them when their walls fell flat. That's how the end is described in 1 Thessalonians 5.3. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them and they will not escape. It's a picture of the final judgment. Um, we read in 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 10, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day. And Peter says in 2 Peter 3.10, Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. All around the world will be death and destruction, but what will happen to those who put their faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ? It will be death and destruction and fire all around, but we will be spared. We will be brought safely through it by our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. God's saving grace will spare us from the wrath to come. Because the good news of the gospel is any who put their faith and trust in Christ can know for sure what God has promised in His Word is that you are not destined for wrath, but for rescue. That's the good news of the gospel to all those who put their faith and trust in Christ. 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, and 10 tells us, For God has not destined us for wrath, 
but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. We'll be caught up together with the saints to our God, saved from the wrath to come. Um, That is the good news, that those who believe in the Lord will always be with the Lord, and the judgment will not touch them. The gospel comes to all of us tonight and pleads with us to be reconciled to God. Puts before us the end that awaits all mankind. A day of reckoning. A day of reckoning where God will come. And those who judge, who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, will be saved by God's grace through faith in Him. Because He has been punished on our behalf. And there are those who will not turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they will be punished for their sins. And that day will be too late to decide between the two camps. And so the the work of the church and the work of Christians in the world is to go to people and say, be reconciled to God before that great and terrible day. The good news is today is not the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day where you can change where you are in this balance. If you are one who has not put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who would experience his sovereign justice were he to come right now, um, it's not too late for you. It's not too late for you to put your trust in the Lord who died for your sins so that you would live. The Lord does not want anyone to perish in the judgment. He has said, I desire that all would come to me and live. I don't enjoy the death of any of the wicked. I would rather that they live. And the Lord has borne with us generation after generation, spreading that good news of the gospel of His Son 2,000 years so that people might continue to hear and be saved. That's the will of the Lord for us. That's what this text is meant to point us to. There's a way to escape the judgment that's coming. And the way is to put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we earnestly pray that you would work by your spirit that many who do not know you might come to saving faith in Jesus Christ that they might find forgiveness of their sins because he has been punished for our sins on the cross, that he might protect them from the wrath to come by his sacrifice. We know that there is no other hope in that day but the salvation that he offers. And when we think about your judgment, it is a terrible thing for us to reflect on, but we know that it is your just judgment on account of the magnitude of sin, that sin against your eternal majesty requires the eternal penalty, but that you have made a way out for sinners, that you offer to all rest in the Lord Jesus Christ, shows your mercy and your goodness. We pray that none of us might miss that call that you have issued to us, that we might respond in faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ to deliver us on that great and terrible day. And then for those who know him, we can be assured that it will not be a terrible day for us, but a day of rescue. Um, And it will all be account of the wonderful work of mercy and grace that you've done in us 
Lord, help us to put our faith and trust in Christ and find rest for our souls. And hear us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take up our psalters and as a song of response, turn to number 228 and we'll stand together and sing all the verses of 228. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, lift up your hearts to the Lord now and receive his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. People of God, go in peace.